Hello and welcome to Design Unmuted, a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art, and all things creative. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. Thank you for joining us back on this second part of our conversation with Dr. Diane Jones-Allen. On this second part, we talk a little bit more about her practice working on grassroots community-driven projects and some of the challenges and opportunities that come along with having a small private landscape architecture practice. On this episode, I also take some time to talk about my graduate thesis project called Bujumbura 2050, a new design matrix. So um, stick around till the end to hear more about the framework that I used in my work. All right, let's get back into the conversation. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Actually, I wanna talk to you a little more about your private firm. I think I remember I remember in one of your talks at, at uh, the GSD Black in Design Conference, you were part yeah. of a panel and you mentioned something about um, getting work from the community, uh, mm-hmm. almost like uh, having a very unconventional way of, of starting and going about projects. Yes. And um, to me, I, I find that quite incredible. And I'll, I'll let you talk talk a little bit more about that, and 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 I will tell you a little bit of my experience. <laughs> um, so, okay, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but um, well, I don't know. It's not really bursting your bubble. It's just <laughs> a, a, a added truth onto it. So, right. on one hand, often something that is an impediment or yeah, a negative can be a positive and something really wonderful. So part of the issue, um, and Design Jones is my second black firm. I had another firm, Terra Designs. And actually I used to get work because at the time, Mark Moriel, who's now head of the Urban League, was the mayor. And he was really good at making sure that there was diversity. And, you know, and so I would actually get work, sometimes prime work, and then, you know, get to be on a lot of teams because he was, you know, they had a really good, process of making sure there was diversity. Um, But for black firms, you know, um, and then when I started my second firm, it it was um, Design Jones. And even with the first one, um, you know, I'd end up uh, a sub a lot because for black firms, often it's really hard, right? Um, They'll, you know, want you to be the DBE, like the, the, um, you know, to be the black so they can get the DBE credit. And oftentimes when you're the sub, the DBE, you really don't get a lot of the real design work. Somebody else is doing it. They're trying to just get you to fill that DBE requirement. So there's kind of a negative, you know, on one hand it opens up stuff and then on another hand it doesn't. Now, when I was doing stuff under um, the Morial administration, he was really good to make sure that it wasn't token, right? It was but often in under other administrations or other times, you know, for a lot of African-Americans I talk to that have firms, you know, it ends up being um, token stuff and, and you don't really want that. Um, so, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Like, you know, someone's not going to hire you to like, you know, design the high line or do some big, you know, project that other firms can get. Right. Um, and, um, 
several times, like right now I'm teaching, um, when I was teaching before, but other times when I had my practice, I mean, my practice was it. That's how I was making my living. Right. Um, so, uh, I was, you know, ended up a lot, uh, things that were controlled by black people in New Orleans often would come to me. Right. And I love that because like, I couldn't get, I couldn't like bid on the big park or the, you right. know, be on the convention center landscape, unless I was a sub, you know, I couldn't just all be the prime. I knew I was going to get mm. that. Um, but so I got, uh, you know, a uh, uh, bunch of community um, head start centers, you know, I see, and, and, you know, uh, a community would come about, you know, wanting a playground and wanting a park and having to, you know, work with them. So the community often would come or work on a black church or what, you know, mm -hmm. so that kind of stuff started to, you know, to happen because the other stuff, you know, it's hard to go after unless you're going to be on a team. And often there's issues with that. I mean, we've done it and I'm doing it now on a project um, being a, a, a sub, you know, for a majority firm. I mean, I right. do that too, but you know, my real bread and butter started to be those kind of grassroots things. And then often that kind of led to a real connection to the community. Right. I see. And then uh, like in the lower ninth ward where actually my office is and, you know, my, my office in New Orleans was in, um, and actually we, we still have, you know, our home there, a home there. Uh, I mean, that is my community. So like, you know, being a part of the community, you, you start to like, you know, work from the bottom up. And the thing I like about that, you know, it's like I said, we decide, okay, you know, things aren't happening in the neighborhood the mm -hmm. way we should post Katrina, things aren't happening. And, and, you know, Brad Pitt's gone and things. Aren't <laughs> So what can we do, right? And yeah. so I, I work with a community and we, we or we, the community, we wrote a, a RUDET application mm -hmm. and we got that and it kind of started things up or, you know, work with someone in the community to do, uh, you know, a, a playground or, you know, other things, um, uh, you know, right now, like trying to work with people in the community to, you know, do maybe a community investment trust or just some other things. Yeah. Um, so uh, some of that at the beginning kind of came out of necessity being African-American, you get the kind of African-American <laughs> and, but the like, nice thing I like is then those people, you know, they embrace you and you end up, and then you get to a place where you can like work with them from bottom up. Right. You know? um, and you know, it's kind of a different process because you, work you you just say you want to do something you 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 have to kind of find the money right so you or find work. your money or does the community uh, that approach well, the community will apply for a grant and in that you know if there's design out of that or you know of course that would you know that's you know if there are design fees or whatever right it can be written into the grant or whatever but yeah you you know you work with the community to find the funding yeah depending on what it is yeah and so the, how does the timeline of that kind of work compared to a client kind of base, like a client comes and like they have the funds, how, how, how does the timeline differ? It's a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
because you know you have to like really um kind of do engagement galvanize the community you know do your political work finding out who owns the land if that's the issue right you know, where are you going to find funding you know what is the organization that's going to or a nonprofit or why it's going to hold the funding you know you know so it takes a longer process mm -hmm. but it's it's really more rewarding because you're I like imagine. the to like the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then often, you know, like I said, people that are already doing that kind of stuff would come to us like somebody that was a nonprofit, you know, right. several times and said, would you work with us? And, and, you know, we're, you know, we're a nonprofit, we're getting the funding or we have some funding or we're, you know, um, so we, we end up working a lot with grassroots organizations. That's really good. So do you always wait until they've secured funding before you will start work? Or is there instances where you will? Well, part of the work often will be uh, helping them with the funding. And if they, you know, helping oh. them, giving them some, you know, and if, if we're not doing that, yeah, often we'll start work before. Okay. Because often, you know, having drawings often helps. <laughs> right, in securing the funding, right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. So I, I, when you said that at that panel, I was like, oh, she's doing it because I, I did the, the career discovery program. Oh, yeah. And so like, you know, obviously I'm trying to figure out what, what is this? You know, like it's only been like, it had been like a few months prior to that that I had heard the word landscape architecture. Like, okay, so then apply, I go. And I remember being in a seminar and I asked um, how, if there has been any work in of landscape architecture in terms in, in the humanitarian kind of like realm and field. And um, this professor says, absolutely not this this is not a field where you can you can do any of that this is very expensive yeah and this is very like this is based off of clients it's like it's very expensive to do any kinds of projects don't expect like you know like she literally said do not expect that you can ever do that kind of work within this industry oh that's so untrue i mean there are a lot of young people that are really doing that now i get you of that firm Kinkui. they came out of harvard and they do that kind of work across the world, um, which is, um, and that's really untrue because a lot of the work we do is like that. I mean, well, I was at um, Career Dis I mean, I went to Career Discovery too. That's how I, <laughs> I have that in common. Andre <laughs> <laughs> 1981 or something. You probably weren't born, but they had <laughs> Career Discovery in 1981. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, um, I, when I was at um, Black and Design, I went, I guess the year before I was on that panel. Well, maybe I was on a, at one time I was on a panel. And then I think the year before I talked about this project um, mm -hmm. that we were working on. I don't know if that's the one you saw where I talked about this project um, in um, New Orleans where Gordon Plaza, where these people were living on a landfill. They were living on a Superfund site. Mm, no, yeah. I didn't see that one. Yeah. And so we work with them, you know, and it was all, you know, um, kind of like pro bono just wanted to help, uh, um, you know, we work with them 
um, actually, um, Austin was at the time, he was at LSU. So we actually had some students do some drawings, but we actually, we did a, a, a one of the field, um, what do you call them? Those kind of field trips they do at ASLA. Oh, <laughs> where, okay. <laughs> you know, where, you know, you can sign up to go. And it's funny because when we proposed it, we said no one wants to come see people living on a super fun site, but we had a lot of people that came and it was really good because it got them awareness. And um, so, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work like that where, you know, the work we did in Haiti was like, right. um, and so I'm I, so glad to hear no. that. <laughs> I, 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 I'm telling you. It depends on what he's saying you want to get out of it, right? Because, uh, you know, like, yeah, you're not going to get paid the same. And you might get paid more in the long run or who knows. But, mm -hmm. I mean, if that's not your motivation for uh, doing that kind of work. But landscape architects, you know, for instance, um, so we, we worked on, um, and actually it's part of it's finally um, about to be under construction. And uh, these two African-American women in New Orleans got this grant, a huge grant because um, they, some, there had been a study to look at taking the freeway down. And actually we were a subconsultant on that study, mm. but they were surprised because people that lived in Treme were like, no, we don't want the freeway down because basically they realized once you drop the freeway, their whole neighborhood was going to gentrify. And, right. they, and, they, and they adapt, they, they've adopted underneath the freeway. You know, they have mm. like pop-up markets and, you know, wash their cars and yeah. the Mardi Gras and second line under there. So they've adopted, they've claimed the space. Right. So these two women, you know, after that bigger study went and got their own grant to look at how do we claim this space more, right? So how do we design under here to kind of formalize what people do so that it can't be taken away? And oh, if interesting. we drop the freeway that we still own the ground, right? Because we right. have stuff under here. Um, and so we, um, we were really lucky that, um, you know, we, we, we had, you know, a relationship, was able to have a relationship with them and work on that project. Um, so, and that was grassroots, these two young women right. did that. And they needed landscape architects because the things we do, like, just like the, the, uh, the people on the landfill, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, locating other place, if, if, if they can get moved, where can they get moved? What would that look like? What would happen to the land once it was there with every fight of remediation? So for them to say that, that kind of work, I mean, like in Haiti, you know, we came and we looked at, um, and some of that work ended up being built, looking at, you know, this um, Jacques Mel, this uh, kind of historic part of the city mm -hmm. that really, because um, of the earthquake, you know, it had kind of died and it had been, been like the heart and what kind of things could we help them do to bring it back. And that's landscape architecture. I, I don't know. And, and like restoring these ravines where after the earthquake, people brought all this plastic and, you know, in, in Haiti, those ravines, people wash their clothes and wash their babies and do yeah, everything. everything. Yeah. But, and, uh, and people came, that's like not knowing the culture. So they came to help, but when they came to help, they brought plastic. And like, they don't have like recycling and all that. So the plastic got dumped in the ravines. Oh. 
which, you know, so we're working on a project to try to help clear that up. But anyway, landscape architecture has the answer to these questions. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I was so thrown back when I heard that. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, because there is landscape architecture like that. There is corporate landscape architecture. Where it's very one, You know, the plus, the stuff that you see in ASLA magazine awards, you know. Yeah, the yes. Gardens and yeah, the wonderful parks and all that. Yes, there, there is this. All right. I just want to take a moment to thank the Real Estate Foundation of BC for sponsoring this episode of Design Unmuted. The Real Estate Foundation of BC is a philanthropic organization working to advance sustainable land use and real estate practices in British Columbia. They do this by funding projects, connecting people, and sharing knowledge. Their grants support not-for-profit organizations working to improve BC communities and natural environments through responsible and informed land use, conservation, and real estate practices. They're particularly interested in land use projects that contribute to the upholding of indigenous rights and title and racial equity and justice. You can learn more at www.refbc.com. Thank you for your support of Design Unmuted. Now, let's get back to it. It's the image. Like, I, I, I think uh, in this industry, there is there are people who are obsessed with the image of things and not necessarily mm -hmm. i guess maybe the the spirit I mean, like those projects know. are necessary you know the parks and the gardens and the lovely you know estates of residential estates that win awards and all that stuff that stuff's important and great but that is not all of landscape architecture yes. there's another side right helping a community that's on a landfill or helping, you know, people that want to, you know, that the freeway has been dropped on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that project is incredible. So where is that now? Um, how, were you able to secure the land? Yeah, it's public land. So the state they turned it over and um, the first phase is about to be in construction. Yeah, we're excited. Look at that. Three blocks. This was 19 blocks under the freeway. Where can we find more information about that? Uh, I think we might have, if you go to my website, mm -hmm. it's called Claiborne Corridor. And also if you Google CCID, Claiborne Corridor Innovation District. So the, the, the group I was telling you about, uh, those two women, they, they formed a, um, you know, a, either an LLC or a nonprofit. And um, so they, they have a website, CCID. You get a lot of information. And then if you go to Design Jones LLC, we, we have the drawings and stuff or some stuff up there, I think. Good, but yeah. yeah. I, I suspect that people who will be listening will be very curious to to see the outcome of this because it's really sounds really great. Mm -hmm. Actually, so now switching to your career in academia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are director of uh, landscape architecture at the University of Texas? Arlington. Arlington. Oh, okay. You're Arlington. not Austin, Arlington. <laughs> oh, okay. My bad. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> and I wanted to know, um, given the fact that there is such little representation of Black people in landscape architecture, mm -hmm. uh, educators, students, um, 
how have you found um, your experience navigating um, the landscape architecture world within academia and uh, what kind of things uh, are you doing to, um, I guess, um, increase black representation? Yeah. Okay. So I'll answer the first and then the second. So um, it's been difficult. Like, so I, I came, well, I'll say it's been difficult, but I, I think I've, I've been able to thrive. So that's <laughs> so, amazing. <laughs> but it's been difficult on one hand, because, um, so I came from practice, you know, I came to teaching late. I, I had, I, I worked for an architect an engineer, you know, I graduated from UC Berkeley. And so I went right into practice. I worked for um, Maryland National Capital Park and Planning. So I worked for public agencies and private firms. Mm-hmm. And I started my own firm, design, I mean, Terra Designs. And then um, after I was in New Orleans for a long time. So, you know, after Berkeley, I went to Baltimore for a little bit and then I ended up in New Orleans. So I've been in, I was living in New Orleans since I was in my twenties. I actually okay. lived there longer than I lived in Baltimore, even though all my family's in Baltimore, but I lived in mm. New Orleans. And, um, and so I had my own practice, Terra Designs. And, and then, you know, after Katrina, I ended up back in Baltimore and um, I was working for, so I had closed my firm down, you know, Katrina came a lot. And then I, I, um, I was working for a firm, a uh, land planning firm, um, STV. And I um, got, you know, I was asked to teach adjunct at Morgan State um, which is HBCU in Baltimore. Mm. So I was teaching a planting design class and I was like, oh, teaching's cool. And then next yeah, year they had an open position. They had a tenure track position and yeah. I applied and I got it. Awesome. Yeah. And I was really lucky because at that time, Glenn Smith, who is the, you know, you know, Glenn Smith, he's, yes. um, I guess he's the president or founder of um, Black Land. He mm-hmm. was the chair. <laughs> and oh, so I was okay. really lucky because, um, he was a really good chair because he felt as chair, his position was to advocate and to help tenure track faculty be get tenured. So mm-hmm. um, he like really, and he had been in academia before where I hadn't. So, you know, he was like, you need to, you know, you know, write an article for landscape, you know, you need to, you know, do this, you need to get a grant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guy laid out for me, you know, a checklist. It's funny because, you know, me and Colin, we would have our fights, but he was, re- he was like really good. You know, he was good at advocating for me and the other faculty, but like, okay, I have to be careful because I don't want to say negative things about HBCUs and they're all different. Um, you know, the thing about Morgan is that, you know, Morgan and, and you, um, North Carolina and are the only two HBCUs that have landscape architecture, which is really sad. Oh. Howard doesn't have it. FAMU used to have it. It doesn't have it anymore. Tuskegee doesn't have it. Hampton doesn't have it. All they have architecture, but they don't have landscape architecture. Mm. But you just have, which is, it's just, you know, like it would be nice if Howard and Hampton and yeah. all other HBCUs had it, um, but they don't. So that's one thing. It's and, and that's one reason why you don't find a lot of African-Americans. I was just like you. I had gone all the way. I mean, I had gone all the way through my degree in fine arts. I was getting right. Like, painting. I was going to go off and study art restoration. And I just happened to, because I took the GRE, I just happened to get that little thing in the mail from Harvard about 
the career discovery and I saw something about landscape and when they described it, I said, you mean you can get paid to design a park? And I was always like a Girl Scout and then I was, yeah. a, I was a painter. So I, and I said, wow, this is great because I can use my artistic ability and do right. something functional yes. and outdoors. And I had never heard of it, you know, yes. which is mind crazy. blown. <laughs> Yeah. And it's because, like I said, HBCUs don't teach it. It's just not in our world, even though it's everywhere around. And no, and what other community of people are more tied to land and have land knowledge? That's one of the shame things that we have land knowledge, yet this profession has been kind of taken away from us anyway. So what happened eventually, you know, Glenn left and the the chair became uh, a white guy. And I think the chair now is white. And I, mean, I ended up leaving there. But um, yeah, so you don't have, I mean, I don't know who, you know, you don't have many black people that are chairs of programs, you mm -hmm. know, anymore, or, you know, there were few, <laughs> but probably even less. And um, like, and and the profession is like not one. I mean, most black kids, you'll ask them about architecture because I knew about architecture. Yeah. I actually, thought about it for a second when I was because yeah. I knew I wanted to do something in the arts or creative. But then I thought, eh, too much math. I'll go be a painter. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, but you know, so it's kind of even though it's. I think it's in our bones and all around us. It's somehow that it's kind of, um, so, you know, you find that. And then in, in school, it was kind of the same thing at Berkeley. Like um, I was really fortunate. Um, and it's funny because I was looking at a segment this morning on MSNBC about affirmative action. And, mm. you know, there's this, so I, I was like at the end, I was fortunate, right? Because there were a period in the 70s and 80s where they were giving. So I got a graduate minority fellowship at Berkeley, which meant that if you applied, and this is the thing, like the thing is one misconception is that that there that you don't have to meet the same requirements, right? right. You don't have to be, you know. So yeah. I apply, I met the same requirements. So any African American, just based on their academics who got in a program at Berkeley that didn't have any African-Americans, you know, if you got into a graduate program, so I applied to the landscape architecture, I got accepted. I was African-American. There were no land, no black people in, in that class that I applied. So they gave me the graduate minority fellowship and it was great. It paid all my tuition. Oh, great. A stipend because I had also gotten into Harvard at the same time, but Harvard was giving me student loans and Berkeley gave me this. <laughs> <laughs> I was disappointed, but you know, but uh, but I'm glad I went to Berkeley. It was a great place to study. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but you know, they gave me this fellowship. They even gave me like a stipend for living, and um, so I, I came out of there like owing nothing. So it was really great. oh, that's great. But um, but at Berkeley, you know, like I said, there were just a few of us in each class. You know, there weren't, um, and I think I had one black professor who actually I think was in architecture. There were a couple mm -hmm. more in architecture. You find more in architecture. Yeah. So as students, I mean, you know this, you have to go out and kind of seek, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was the only black students for, in, in, yeah. So I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you have to either go seek other students and other disciplines or, and then you have to seek faculty members, even if they're not in landscape architecture. Right. As a, student. as a grad student, you need, you know, 
that. Mm -hmm. So you have to go kind of seek that. So, you know, um, and I think at the time I was graduating, I mean, I see that more black people that graduate now are working at top firms, which is really good. I think it was harder when I graduated. Um, and, um, and that's why, you know, I think I worked at, um, uh, Howard County Recreation and Parks and, I worked for an architect and engineer. It was hard, you know, like a big landscape architecture firm just wasn't right. hiring me right. or whatever at that time. I think they're I think they're doing it more now, which is good, but it wasn't happening. And so a lot of us went to public because you could get hired at a public planning office or stuff like that. And then eventually I started, you know, my own firm. And but I was lucky because uh, there were people along the way who helped me, you know, um, like Perry Howard and, you know, um, Walter, although we're, we're close in, in age, yes. um, but, um, very close. We might be about the same age, but, um, you know, knowing he was there, we would, you know, talk and, you know, run into each other and, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know he was be inspiring because he's Walter. <laughs> oh know. my goodness. So, yes. <laughs> I did have, you know, peers and other people, Everett Fly you know, um, who, who's older, but yeah, I, you know, who would recommend me for things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can, you don't do anything alone. Um, so I really feel that, um, two things. And I think I talked about that. So I feel that, uh, black students for success. Yes. They need, they need money. You know, like I, like, that's why I ended up there and not Harvard because Berkeley gave me money. Right. <laughs> um, uh, they need money and, you know, to, to, to complete school and, um, they need other students <laughs> like them the support. So, yes. yes. And, and they need really important. They need to have those mentors and black faculty, you know, they're just not enough black faculty, you know, I mean, I look at Berkeley, I, there's Walter and I think they might've hired another black faculty, a female black faculty there, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I'm so happy that, um, Harvard just hired Sarah Zodi. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. So they need, that's the, you, that's, you need black faculty in order for students of color to be successful, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, not that they're not going to learn for the rest of the faculty, because I had great faculty that weren't black when I was at Berkeley. Yeah. But like I said, I had to kind of go seek just because you need to know, like, okay, a person, when you look at a, not a black faculty as a student, it's like, okay, this is possible that this person's like me, at least from the same culture, and they got through this, they can understand certain things that maybe someone right. can't, you know, just the inspiration of it, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, yes, totally. Yes. So, um, so I, I um, as director, when I came, you know, we had no black, well, we had no black faculty <laughs> at UTA. And I mean, until yourself. Uh, <laughs> except me, when I came to the architecture, that was not yeah. I became it. And, um, and I think like full-time faculty in our college, there might be two, me and hmm. another. Um, and, um, and so we had no African-American students. And so my first thing was to make that happen. And so yeah. now, uh, so when I got there in 2017, the next year I bought in, um, I recruited a student, um, actually that I found through Austin, uh, because she had, she had gone to the university of Colorado too. Um, and so she's here. And then I just set out to try to recruit. Um, 
and I recruited uh, uh, an Olmsted scholar, Angelique, who was the undergraduate Olmsted scholar, I think of 2019. Yes. Yeah. So she's doing her master's. She was at uni, so I recruited her. So I've been like going, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. it's hard. And I recruited another student, a uh, planning student, a black woman, but she dropped out in the first year. And the problem is because, I mean, I'm the director, I'm not the teacher, right? Right. I, think I have to, like the environment, I still have to work on making it more conducive and those kind of things. Um, but I just think that's important. So recruiting black students, trying to, and, and all those students, I made sure they got scholarship money. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we our, our program does have endowments, so I'm kind of lucky that I have money that I can offer yeah. to students like that. Um, and the thing I wanted to do for sure is um, make sure that the African-American, and it's a shame that I had to do this, but I wanted to make sure the African-American students I brought in were the top. Like, that's why, like, being able to bring in, <laughs> you know, like the faculty couldn't say, oh, she just, you right? I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Dollar, okay? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Black, you know, and um, and the other student I brought in, Trish, is very bright. So, um, uh, so yeah, so making sure that you know you bring in students, so they can't say, "Oh, it's just because they're black." No, they they oh, exceed yeah. the criteria, right? Yeah, they're better than <laughs> the other students. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, um, and so um, and so the other thing I'm working on too is I am um, vice president of education. Um, just for the year of LAF. <laughs> and uh, so we get to kind of pick what our focus is going to be. Um, Kofi Boone was it last year. And so this year I decided my focus would be on, because LAF is working, you know, with Bland and other people, they're really working on those first two things, trying to get students and trying to get money. And through my job as director, I'm trying to create, um, trying to recruit, recruit, more African-Americans in our program um, and get, you know, but so for LAF, I said, you know, I could use this opportunity to focus on faculty. Right. Because I've had uh, a couple of um, African-Americans that have, you know, MLAs saying that they've applied and they don't get the jobs <laughs> that oh, they've applied and they've been told, oh, they don't have enough research or they don't have this or that, you know? And so like, um, I thought, okay, so I could get a good group of people together, including you, <laughs> and, and work on like, okay, so what, what tools could we give these departments to kind of get them to open up and, you know, hire, seek, you know, and understand the, um, the importance of it, right? Because actually having diverse faculty and students enriches the program, right? You know, having a black student in a studio is not only good for the black student, it's good for the white student that's next to them, right? <laughs> because they get to see other points of view, other design thinking, you know, diversity is a wonderful thing, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've, yeah. I've always, uh, like, I always think uh, it's one thing to get more of us, more black people into the, the schools, but it's the an other to make sure that the curriculum is also res, like yeah. reflective of that diversity as well, because to be stuck in a classroom where you have to roll your eyes is it's it's really and like I mean we're always as students and I speak as student because like it wasn't so long ago that I was still a student 
like you are in a position where yes, you are encouraged to be critical, but there are limits to you feel limited. Yes. Because of that, you know, there is like because there's the power. The faculty holds your grade and exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you do not want and I mean for me, I was the only black student, right? And then you know, you don't want to be that person, you know. Yes. The stereotypes like, oh, the angry black woman. But but I have angry actions. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so I feel I feel like the yeah, the the curriculum definitely which again having black faculty. You yes, know. because faculty shape the curriculum. Exactly. You know? And and there are many, you know, majority people that study black topics. It amazes me how many of them study us. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, that's fine and wonderful, but it is not quite the same right and so Absolutely you know not. you need you, you do need um you know black faculty because it enriches the curriculum or the approach is different you know mm -hmm. yes a lot of them do great jobs and can bring you know stuff about people of color but the approach the approach is often different or you know all kinds of things so it, it having you know black faculty a diverse faculty does shape the curriculum in the program. Yeah, I'm wondering also from the Landscape Architecture Foundation, is there a way to mandate like a course on like black landscapes? Yeah, so LAAB, so that's where that should happen. And they, um, they had it up for a while. Um, so you could, um, they were taking um, comments. So, okay, so LAAB is the um, Landscape Accreditation Board. Uh, so yes, yeah. They're the ones that look at every program, you know, they have these standards, right? Um, uh, yeah. That should be basic, the basic what should be taught, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and so um, programs have to kind of meet that and if they want to get accreditation, right? Mm -hmm. And so there had been, um, I don't want to say pushback, but there have been uh, feedback and <laughs> from many, pushback. <laughs> and, feedback from many. and so they they were redoing the curriculum for. I mean, they were doing the lab accreditation standards for 2020. Um, I think they're about complete because they just had something out um, where you can make comments on them. And two of the things that was wasn't complete. Um, couple of the things that weren't um, included in the curriculum, they're asking that you have to. So you have to have something on climate change, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? performance standards, mm. like going and measuring how landscapes perform. You have to teach something about that. And then you have to have, diver they're calling it diversity and inclusion. Um, which is broad to me so and broad. <laughs> and that was <laughs> I said that, that it's kind of weak and broad. I mean, it's really crazy, but um, you know, and hopefully you're you're gonna edit some of this. <laughs> oh but, yeah, no, I, yeah. <laughs> but um because you know um diversity really drives me nutcakes. Because I, the word diversity, because I think it's just used to weaken, right? Exactly. If you can say diversity, and so I can say, yes, 
that includes, you know, left-handed people and the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, it's almost glasses, like we must include those that were black. <laughs> yeah, everybody kind of gets lumped into <laughs> yes. cool. First figure it out. <laughs> it, it, it it keeps you from like harping on who, who really is being left out, right? And let's yeah. just name those people. But you know, you can't do that, right? Because um there'll be like if someone said there'll be lawsuits. You can't you can't have a position and say, you know, a faculty told me that the other day. Tanya, you can't have a position and say it's for an African American. That's discrimination. No, it's not. Jedi or diversity. And I said, well, if I just say diversity, that's anybody. Because everybody, you know, (laughs) know, which means which means you're back at square one. Right. Yeah. Problem. Anyway, I just don't understand why people still feel discomfort. Just recognizing. Blackness. Yeah. And that there, you know, and that there is a problem and we could easily solve it. But, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's definite pushback um, about this. So yeah, they, they do, they do have. Um, so um, if you want, especially since you're going to be on my committee, I will send you a copy of the new standards so you can see. Yeah. But I think that's definitely something that like, especially also here in Canada, like, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, landscape architecture, history, and no mention of the indigenous people, you know, no mention of the colonial history. Come on. Like landscape, like we we're inherently talking about the land. Yes. And and you I mean like the hypocrisy that exists in this in this field is just it's mind blowing. And yes. for me, I like it, it's very unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, Austin was telling me that he um, was asked, he and Sarah Zodi were asked to be on this ASLA committee about, uh, you know, I think it's like 200 or 300 years, I don't know, of Olmstead. They were going to do some, there's some big Olmstead anniversary coming up. Hmm. And, um, they were trying to get like a, the Congress or something to do like a medal for Olmstead or have this big, and um so when people, you know, like Austin, who has been studying Olmstead for a long time, and then Sarah Zerdi looks at Olmstead. Mm-hmm. So people like that, who really studied his history, like I did, I was so embarrassed, like, because uh, um, I was teaching at Morgan Contemporary Urban Design Theory, and I started with Olmstead. You know, I started with the Central Park, yeah. and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Austin, I had invited him to come to Morgan and to give a lecture about Haiti. Hmm. And he, and that's what he said his lecture was about. I forgot what he called it. And then he starts, he's a filmmaker. So he hmm. starts with this film he made about Olmstead. And I'm thinking, what the hell? <laughs> Why is he talking about Olmstead? And so this film, he starts talking about his trips to the South, to looking yeah. at to the slave, you know, country. And then the Freeman's Bureau and all these things that I had no idea. And then, um, you know, so I was like really embarrassed because I was not teaching any of that. And then about the Olmstead Brothers and Seneca Village, you know, moving out all those black people (laughs) from the Central Park. No clue. So um, there have been people, you know, like them, like Austin and Sarah kind of looking at him like retrospectively and looking at him in a more 
holistic way, not this, our father of the, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. my father who made the lovely park and the beautiful, you know, landscapes that go through the Northeastern cities, <laughs> you know, yeah. some, some people had to give for that to happen. <laughs> our yeah, people. <laughs> they kind of, they put a wrench kind of in their, uh, you know, their little thing. And so they're kind of, I guess, I don't know if they're on hold or they're kind of rethinking how, how they do this. And I said, I think they just need to present him holistically, the good, bad, and the ugly, you know, it's just right. that we put these, you know, we put these white men on these pedestals. <laughs> you know, he just mm. off the pedestal and he's, you know, talk about what he really is. So it's, right. I think tell all the stories, not just the, the, yeah. the story. So, yeah. So I think the work that she's doing is, um, is good. It's great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talking about stories. I think we, we've spoken a lot about, um, current and past landscapes and, and, and communities and issues. And I always like to have a speculative aspect to the podcast mm -hmm. uh, because it's about envisioning futures, like new futures that are Afrocentric. Mm -hmm. And um, I recently uh, uh, was reading uh, Walter Hood's book, Black Landscapes. Oh yeah. Cool. And um, in the closing of his introduction, he says, and I'm going to quote, it is up to those of us in the field to continue to articulate and most of all develop a prophetic aesthetic to counter the colonial malaise so that we can remember and develop new futures from the power of the past. And I, and I like that really just moved me. Like I, I really, I really like that, that, that phrase. And so reflecting on that, uh, going off of this idea of a prophetic aesthetic, um, I want to invite you to, um, to speculate for a moment of what could that be, uh, for, uh, black spaces, uh, black cultures, um, you can feel free to close your eyes and just, this is, this is just like a really fun, fun exercise. Um, and I know it's a difficult question, uh, but like. Just, just take it as, as you will. So for me, that's a really great question. It's not difficult because it, it's a great way to end this because it goes back to the beginning. Because what he said about, you know, looking to the future, you know, envisioning the future from the power of the past. Mm -hmm. And I think about the Maroons, right? Exactly. You know, the Maroons who were in the past, who were living um, in a symbiotic way with nature, right who were standing up for freedom and i look at how we today facing you know injustice you know we're in the age of you know post george floyd right in the middle of that climate change covid you know almost at the brink of our democracy is teetering <laughs> yes. right and i really do think you know um you know i talked to my son who is really you know into technology and knows tells me you know talks to me and his father a lot about the negatives of it about you know ai how they're you know tracking us and <laughs> yes they know what we bought at the store <laughs> you know right um, so we're in that you know dealing with that like technology how how much is it going to take over 
you know, what mm-hmm. we do, this, you know. And so I think to a future where maybe we should connect, where we where we could connect back like the Maroons did, right? Where we could live symbiotically, symbiotically with nature, right? Where, you know, we could connect with our fellow human being and tie ourselves to the landscape. Uh, the things that we face, you think about COVID, I mean, that came from like, you know, not understanding viruses, not understanding, you know, messing with uh, other species that we shouldn't have. Wouldn't it be great if there was a future where we kind of understood and had great appreciation for mm-hmm. the bats and the alligators <laughs> and the, right. you know, the other, you know, a, a future where, you know, we somehow figured out, yes, how to move um I guess life and even tech forward in a way that didn't harm the earth because the earth is pushing back, right? Mm-hmm. But we could learn how to move with it instead right. of totally against it. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so I kind of look back to uh, the Maroons and I understand like, you know, that they, yes, uh, it's a lesson, not just about, okay, how do you live with the landscape and preserve it so that, you know, you can withstand, um, you know, uh, just the forces of nature. But it's also a lesson for when man and his greed, which is what happened, right? The greed of taking down all the cypress, you know, for industry, destroying, you know, canals, all that, you know, the the industry and technology of that day overtook the swamps and overtook that, 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 that culture. And that's a lesson for us because soon if we don't learn, you know, how to live in a different way, it's going to overtake us. You know, hundred percent. We'll be, we'll be AI. Like this phone will be in the <laughs> right. They're already they'll have chips in us and all this stuff. We don't know how to push back from this right now, right? Mm-hmm. We'll all have to wear masks and you know because there'll be no more. You know, there'll be hardly any. You know, if we keep building all these freeways and paving over everything. You know, um, so maybe we need to look at the maroons as a lesson, right? Mm-hmm. As a lesson for how you live with land, but how if technology and industry can actually overtake and rid you from the planet and even rid you from history almost, because like you said, most people didn't even know they were there. I think right. we could have a different, we could have a different future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, this has been such a great conversation. I am so thankful for your time and for your willingness to share so openly. And as a last, I give the opportunity. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I will give you an opportunity to ask me a question of your choosing because I have uh, asked everything and taken so much from, from you. So. Oh, okay. So would you talk just a little bit about, you know, your research? I've only, you know, read, um, you know, the description from the Olmstead. Um, so could you tell me, uh, you know, more about what, what, what you're doing and what you want to do? Of course. So um, 
my final thesis project um, was uh, based in Bujumbura, which is the capital city of Burundi, where I'm from. And it's called uh, Bujumbura 2050, a new design matrix. And the premise of it is to envision what this kind of like growing urban metropolis is going to be based in uh, culture, like local cultural identity and practices. And so it was a speculative project that uh, was really trying to look at a new, like trying to design a design paradigm mm -hmm. in a sense uh, in how and how to go about um, envisioning this this future. So I, as a as a beginning, it start like it starts with uh, criticizing um, kind of like the our apartmentalization of cities and like this like uh, like it, I don't know if you if you're aware, but there's a lot of like international real estate development, uh, especially coming from China into African cities and yeah. it's it's I, mean, I was in Nairobi and it was everywhere Chinese Chinese was everywhere <laughs> yeah and like you know you like you, you come and put up these these big apartment buildings um and the the premises there's a growing population and there's housing needs that need to be met and so going there it's like okay so if we accept that we are going to be living vertically what does that vertical living mean for people of Burundi, right, in Bujumbura? So then I adopted the framework of, of Afrofuturism, which is based on the premise of looking at, at, at the past beliefs, past practices, spiritualities, as a, as a way to take those kind of wisdom to envision a future. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was really interesting. I mean, I I went back to Burundi, like specifically with that land. It's like, I'm gonna go and like try to find some books. And, and, and because these things aren't documented, like you almost have to be like, okay, so I read these like mythical stories because they will reveal a little bit of how uh, the environment was managed. They will reveal um, how time was and understood. And so, the the most interesting part though which was actually pretty sad is when i was there i was trying to find some geography books on burundi and th there was nothing like i couldn't find anything so then i'm like okay i'm gonna go to the black market so then i go and i'm trying to i'm like oh i'm looking for a geography book i'm like they're like you're looking for a geography book on burundi i'm like yes and they just they're like oh you're not from here obviously because <laughs> like they they couldn't and they couldn't understand why I'd be interested in that. Oh. So uh, so I talked to this guy. He's like, okay, come back in two days. Give me your number. I'll find something. Oh. So he goes. I don't know where he found this book, but this book is super old. Um, he brings it to me. Turns out that one of my friend's uncle, who is a geography professor, so I connected with him. I'm like, oh, can I have your your uncle's contact? And so he'd been a co-writer for that book. So then I asked him, um, I found this book. It is the only copy I could find. Uh, and I don't know where this guy dug it from. And then, so then he talks about um, how with the war, there had been a pause on kind of advancing geographical knowledge. 
wow. and documenting it and um, publishing books in that context is extremely difficult, right? So um, even the very fact of being able to like redraw those maps for me gave me great happiness because- Is it because they don't want people to know the way, the, the past geography or something? Um, I think there's been an interruption in, in a lot of things because of the war. Um, but also there's a lack of resources for publishing the books. Yeah. Um, but politically as well, because people are trying to control territories, mm. land surveying is seen as, as a threat because of political issues. Oh. Like I remember being there and trying to take like street photography because I was trying to do just like surveying public mm -hmm. life and uh, a policeman being like, well, what are you doing? Wow. And I'm like, okay, well, well, I'm just taking photos. Like, no, you can't be like, you can't just, do you have a permission? Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very, um, very different environment. But anyway, so to go back to, to my research, so um, so then studying past uh, living spaces, and I can give you like a little bit of Snapchat, snapshot, um, where it's kind of like uncovering that communities were built as a community, right? So the idea of like a, like a single designer is already uh, not culturally um, in alignment with these past practices because a whole village will come together to build a community um and uh the the living spaces were were very multifunctional mm. right like it was it was a place place for product agricultural production producing crafts um you know it was a, is, a, is a place for celebration and recreation so really like taking th this idea that you know the way that urban development is happening now is like single zoned areas. This is going to be residential. This is going to be like for industry. This is, and it's, it's like, as a first, it's like, we need to integrate those, all those uses. Mm -hmm. um, also making spaces incremental uh, uh, that not only because of practical ways of going through financing these things, but also culturally what used to happen is, um, the main family would have their house, which was a hut. And then when the son or sons would get married, they would have like a like another one that mm -hmm. would that would come. And then when the sons were stable enough to leave or if they wanted to stay, like you would see that hut disappear. So mm -hmm. it was a very flexible space that almost expands with the needs, right? It was also like building in that ability to um, expand, but, and then having done like a lot of this kind of like past spatial survey, like on cultural dynamics, it was looking now at like the current urban uh, conditions. And I've, I've really been fascinated with the informality and the informal economy and how the, because of there is an informal eco economy, the use of space is completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, integrating, making like productive and like maker spaces as part of a home. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, like a lot of African countries, we didn't go to industrialization. 
know, and then like the history of urban development was result as a like a result of an industrialization and and that and so it's like if we're going to develop right and like also be able to make our own things, which is part of sovereignty, yes, um, and not to do it at a scale that we've seen it because it's it's like that's what destroys the environment, right? Whereas like yes. if you, you like do it at a micro scale, so just really trying to integrate all those things. Um, into this I actually project. think, you know, in Africa, you have a better chance almost than here because that's one thing I noticed about Africa and Haiti. It was people were more entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. that, you know what I mean? They were more entrepreneurial. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because here, people want to go work for somebody. There, I saw people got up every day and decided to work themselves. Sell that's something. because they're, they're, something. They're, the systems, you would say, is broken. So it forces everyone into trying to figure out a way to make their own living. Um, and so Western school of thought will try to kind of like fix informality. Yeah. Formalize things. But often you shouldn't. Exactly, right? <laughs> it's like, so then how do you build in informality? Yes. Um, so those were all the things that like were leading the work that I was doing in my like in my graduate project now how successful that was that I don't know <laughs> you know when you don't sleep enough <laughs> things <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it's definitely like I I think um my supervisor said you know it's this is the beginning of a lifelong work so like I'm really like excited to continue doing this but also like really um this idea of Afrofuturism has been fueling me because it's so positive, but it also invites this archaeological research. Yes. Right? Because you have to base it, it has to be founded into something yes. bigger. And so that's that's been my work. That's my those are my aspirations. That's wonderful. I mean, and also the great thing about it is I think that you know, the things that you're talking about can be applied anywhere in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Because the thing about like informality that reminds me of New Orleans. I mean, that's one of the things we had to do and that people make informal markets because it's very African <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, 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 they make things and they just, you know, start playing music on the street and yeah. table and sell stuff and make cooking and come out and sell it or just have a big party. And um, so I, I think it, I think, you know, what you're doing could be, I mean, I understand your, you that geography, but the, but those principles, I think kind of could apply anywhere in the diaspora, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I, so. <laughs> I mean, I, and also think like there, there has been a, can apply anywhere in the diaspora. I'll yeah. There's been a resurgence of uh, like home industry in, in if you will, like where people are like are making things and like you know uh online i i guess markets are allowing mm, people yeah. to have to 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 transfer like the home be also becomes this yeah industrial space right and so if we can also design like i think i think everywhere we should start integrating these uses together like having just purely residential, what is that? 
Yeah. And well, we've been kind of forced into it because of COVID. <laughs> this is and my office and my dining room. <laughs> except the space wasn't made to make that, you know, <laughs> like comfortable and like, you know. So it's, it's um, yeah. I'm 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 really hoping to continue exploring uh, these questions. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, of course. No, thank you for for taking the time to to talk. Sure. Uh, and I know we went over time, so I hope I hope I'm not. Uh, <laughs> no, that's okay. I love to talk, as you can see. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Design Unmuted podcast, brought to you by Divine. If you liked what you heard, please rate and tell your friends about it. You can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Find me on Instagram at Ramesha Design Unmuted and also on my website at www.rameshadesign.com. The track you're hearing is called Under the Sun by Kafaye, singer-songwriter, and produced by Ozenit or Zenith by Kiga and Sanjan. Enjoy. Oh